Hey friends, episode 12 coming at you on the Wild and Free podcast where we combine our love of great coffee with an even greater purpose, which is to make a difference in the lives of those affected by human trafficking. I'm Twyla, owner of Wild Ginger Coffee and host of these conversations. Do you have a favorite episode? Maybe two. Are you learning, growing, getting inspired? We would love to know. Um, You can leave us a review or rate us on Spotify or just send us a message. It's always really good to hear from you um, and it encourages us just like we are sure that this conversation that we're having today will encourage you. Today I am chatting with Monique Icarus. She first became aware of human trafficking when interning with a nonprofit in Bangkok, Thailand in 2013. Since then, her passion to help girls and women impacted by this widespread social justice issue has grown. After spending two years at Alora House working on the front line with survivors of sexual exploitation and trafficking, she is now the program director and seeks to increase awareness and engagement in anti-human trafficking work in our community. Recently graduating with an honors Bachelor of Design, Monique's thesis research focused on developing a successful anti-trafficking awareness program targeting Gen Z. In her free time, Monique likes to explore new places with her husband, go on hikes with her Shiba Doodle Molly and drink tea and as we learn at the end of this episode also coffee so maybe you should grab yourself some and enjoy this conversation with Monique Icarus. Hi Monique I am so so happy that you are joining me on the podcast today welcome (laughs) um It's kind of funny because you were supposed to be on, I think it was in episode four with Louisa. Um, mm-hmm. And then, as we'll hear about later, your crazy schedule working at the Alora house kept you away that night. But honestly, it was probably a good thing because I think that you have a lot to say on your own on the podcast. So I'm really, really thrilled to have you. Um, would you just yeah, introduce yourself to the listeners? Tell us a little bit about you and how you fill your days. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Um, thanks for having me. My name is Monique. Um, right now, I am the program director at Alora House, which is why I'm on this podcast to talk a little <laughs> bit about that and my experiences. Um, school-wise, I have an honors bachelor of design, so that's with a focus on graphic design, um, which is sounds kind of funny because if you compare that to the role I'm in right now, um, <laughs> but I've had a unique journey to where I've gotten to. Um, I have, I've been married for five years. Um, I have a sheep-a-doodle named Molly, who's- I have never heard of a -a sheep-a-doodle before. And I smiled widely when I saw it written. (laughs) (laughs) She is so cute. Um, Yeah, so she brings us a lot of joy. She's quite the character. Um, Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm passionate about anti-trafficking work. Um, I'm also a creative person, so I feel a lot of my free time, my self-care um, is often centered around creativity. Um, another fun fact is that I actually had my own chalkboard or chalk lettering business for a number of years. What? Yeah, that I'm still kind of doing on the side. Um, yeah, so... There's a lot, a lot of different things that I... What was it called? What's your chalk business called? It's called... Chalkboard, not chalk. Yeah, no, um, (laughs) Chalk and Charm. So I, yeah, I worked with, um, I started out small doing like weddings and stuff, Mm -hmm. just for friends and word of mouth, it kind of spread. And then I started getting bigger clients. So like the University of Waterloo, their food service department, different restaurants, cafes. Yeah, 
So I did that for a number of years, which was cool to have that as a creative outlet. And then I um, started school for graphic design. So um, I'm doing some graphic design on the side, but my passion um, really lies in anti-trafficking work and working with survivors. Yeah. And you, I found it really fascinating. Um, also, when you sent me your bio that you did your thesis on uh, like your thesis in design, but was on, um, oh, what was it? Help me. Designing a, like an, um, an anti-human trafficking awareness campaign for Gen Z. Gen Z. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you've obviously like taken these two things that like it could sound to most of us like they're in you know opposite mm -hmm. fields and put them together which I think is amazing and that's yeah. what creative people do is they bring these things <laughs> and put them together so yeah, yeah I guess I I think at this point we're all curious kind of how you ended up at that point mm -hmm. um why human trafficking why is that a big deal for you um and how do you find yourself now as the um program director for Elora House Yes. Um, so my journey kind of started in 2012 after I finished high school. Um, a friend introduced me at the time to the issue of human trafficking more on like a global scale. Um, I had never really been aware of human trafficking, specifically sex trafficking, um, and I wanted to learn more. So I started reading books and educating myself. Um, and then the opportunity arose for me to actually go overseas and do an internship with a not-for-profit um, that worked, was doing anti-trafficking work. So I went overseas and lived in Bangkok, Thailand for seven months in 2013. Okay. I spent like one day in Bangkok, Thailand. Yeah. And which like, I was so confused, so lost and lost a flip-flop in the middle of the street and had to run around barefoot for the whole day oh and i'm just like i don't even know how anyone lives here for an extended period of time it is definitely quite a contrast like culturally yeah there's a lot of culture shock um but i definitely grew an appreciation for the culture mm -hmm. for sure and the chaos what we see as chaos yeah like no traffic rules there aren't yeah. really oh like traffic lights yeah so when i first got there i was like what the heck is this but i told <laughs> you, it became more normal to me like i just yeah. learned how to kind of live in their normal um so yeah the organization i worked with is called nightlight international um, it was started by Annie Dieselberg. She's American. And uh, what Nightlight does is they have kind of two streams, I guess, of their organization. So they have the foundation that does all of the um, like outreach and charity work. And then they also have a business. So Nightlight, their business, um, they employ women, Thai women who are exiting the sex industry and they make jewelry and learn mm -hmm. that as a kind of trade. Um, so they employ them and then their jewelry is sold internationally, which is super cool. Um, so we would go into bars and do outreach in the red light areas um, and make connections with women who were entrapped by the sex industry. Mm -hmm. So what I've learned is that culturally, the issue of human trafficking looks very different in different parts of the world. So my first exposure to human trafficking was in Thailand. So I kind of became um, 
really informed. I won't say an expert, but <laughs> informed in what it's like a crash course. Like yeah. because you also don't have to look very hard to find like it's very overt. It's like yeah, there in your face, like you almost have to try to miss it. Yeah, definitely. Sex tourism there is huge. Mm. Um, and then the other side of nightlight was that they were working with um international women um who were trafficked internationally into Thailand which is often the misconception that we think mm -hmm. that trafficking only happens across international borders, which is not true. But in Thailand, that was happening. Um, women were being brought in for sex tourism. So they worked, they had a safe house um, and they would work with women and their children to send them home and make sure that they were connected with organizations in their home country um, mm -hmm. to help support them once they got back home. So that was quite the experience that definitely shaped me. Um, yeah, I saw a lot. I learned a lot. I had a lot of um, hard experiences and good experiences. Mm. So I came back from Thailand and I knew that I wanted to do something. Like I knew that this was my passion or like my calling in life. Um, but I didn't really know what that looked like in the context of Canada. <laughs> And I didn't even know a lot about what human trafficking looked like in Canada. So mm -hmm. I started my bachelor's degree at the University of Guelph. I, um, yeah, I went for criminal justice and public policy and I wanted to be a lawyer. So that's how I saw that's my- That's another plot twist. <laughs> I know, there's a lot of plot twists. I um, love this. <laughs> yeah, I saw myself like I knew I just got so fired up by the injustice of this whole issue. Um, and so I thought, you know, I'll be a human rights lawyer and I'll fight for the rights of um, victims and survivors. Mm -hmm. And then I finished two years of that degree and I started to wonder and kind of reflect, you know, on my personality, I'm not good with public speaking and things like that. So just kind of, reflecting, do I actually see myself in that role? Do I see myself going to law school and becoming a lawyer? And the answer was no. <laughs> so, Fair enough. <laughs> another plot twist. Um, I applied to Conestoga and that's where I did my Bachelor of Design. Um, so graphic design, so tying in my, my passion too for more creative things. Um, so I did that for four years and then, yeah, my thesis, I was able to bring those two pieces together and develop research and develop, um, an awareness campaign targeting youth in Canada, um, who are being targeted and lured into domestic minor sex trafficking through social media. So they're being groomed on social media and exploited on social media. Um, so that was really cool seeing... Because I, I often wondered, like, how is this going to tie in? I know that I really like graphic design and it's something that I like aligns with my talents and my gifts and stuff. Mm -hmm. But how is that going to tie into anti-trafficking work? So it was really cool to see that come together. Um, and then I guess rewind a little bit. I met Louisa, who's the executive director and founder of Laura House in 2018 so one of our mutual connections knew that i was passionate about this work and knew that louisa had the vision for this house um mm -hmm. and so we were introduced 
And that was before, that was while Laura House was still very much in the vision phase. Um, Louisa, I think, had probably just been at that conference where she'd learned about human trafficking locally in Center Wellington, Guelph, Waterloo region, mm. that there was a huge need for a home and for housing, safe housing. Um, so I joined Alora House officially um, in the fall of 2019 as a volunteer. So I did all the volunteer training um, that fall and then we opened in March of 2020 and I was hired on. Um, and now two years later, and I'm the program director, which is crazy. Yeah, did um, you ever think that that's like what you would end up doing there? Like program no. director, is that? Never. So <laughs> yeah. It's, You're like, I'll just put into practice this little like social media campaign that I worked so <laughs> hard on in the background. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wild because I have all of these unique experiences um and different things that I pull from but it's not the common path like I didn't get a bachelor of social work and then a master's of social work and now I'm in this position like it's been a very unique and kind of strange journey here um but it's cool looking back and seeing how all of these different experiences that I've had even what I like at the University of Guelph criminal justice and public policy like that really ties into what we're doing too. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's kind of the long version, I guess, but that's how I ended up where I am now. I think, I think that's amazing. Cause like, I don't know, I think sometimes it's easy to feel like there's certain seasons in our lives if we can't quite place them or they don't seem to make a lot of sense. And we think like, oh, we think it's wasted or we're yeah. like, well, my gosh like what was all that about and like well now I'm here and now I'm way over here and yeah. and then it's like all of a sudden you have this space where like passion and purpose collide and mm -hmm. all of a sudden you realize that like all these little things and experiences and even people you've met or whatever yeah. these things are they all kind of start to you start to see how they all you use all of it yeah. And you need all of it. And like, even, you know, even if there's things that you're like, I still don't totally understand why this is a thing. It's like someday mm -hmm. it's probably going to, you know, it's probably going to start to make sense. And yeah. I just think it's, I think it's cool that like, I don't know, I think sometimes we don't give ourselves permission to change our mind. Mm -hmm. And so we, yeah. we stay on like, how many people do you know that, you know, started on a track like that of being like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Yeah. And this is what I'm going to do. And then they kind of, didn't really want to do it anymore but they're like I made it this far like I need to keep going and then it just kind of mm -hmm. keeps going and it keeps going and then also you're like why do I hate my life why do yeah. I hate my job because we don't give ourselves permission mm -hmm. to do something different and there's literally no rule that says you can't pick a new career or you can't yeah. it's just that like we don't do it yeah but there's no rules <laughs> <laughs> no it's like we feel we put this pressure on ourselves that mm -hmm. like to get to a certain point, it has to look a certain way. Yeah. Or once you've started something, you have to finish, otherwise you're a failure. So <laughs> it was hard like leaving the University of Guelph, a half finished degree and starting mm -hmm. over something totally different. But I knew that that's what I had to do. So, yeah. and, and a lot day, of it would have just been that. miserable. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and, and spent a lot of money, I presume. 
on mm-hmm. law school. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a lot. And I feel like, too, even this is, again, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I just always think, like, in high school, it's like you're in grade 12 or 11 even, and they're like, okay, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? And you're like, what? And I I'm just realizing that, you know, I'm like, you don't have to do the same thing for your entire life. No. I was like, that's the thing is like, you can try something and then not like it and mm-hmm. you can like start again. And like, yes, it might mean you start at the bottom again or whatever, Yeah, but it's, there's, it's like a myth that it's like, you have to in grade 12, pick the one thing that you're going to do for your whole entire life. And so there's like this enormous pressure to like, get mm-hmm. it right the first time. And yeah. I just think sometimes you don't know until you try something. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, literally none of the things I'm doing now are things that I even knew were things I could do when I was in high school. Yeah. Like, I'm a painter for a construction company. Like, that was not, like, aspiring goals. <laughs> but I, like, happened upon it because I needed a job and I did the mm-hmm. thing that was in front of me and I actually, like, love my job now. Yeah. You know, and it's, like, coffee. I don't even, like, I didn't even drink coffee for the longest time. And then I did. It's just, like, all these really random things that I'm, like, who... I don't know how to run a business. Why am I running a coffee company and what am I doing? Like all of these things, right? And it just, eventually all these little pieces kind of come together and I wouldn't have never known, you know, that I enjoy Like you would have never known that you really, I mean, I'm assuming you really enjoy being a program director. (laughs) It's like you're in here too, but sometimes you don't know until you're literally put in positions where even where someone like believes in you a little bit more than you believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, I think you could do it. And then you're like, okay, I'm totally <laughs> going to do it. Even though I feel like I'm going to throw up in my mouth right now. But I- <laughs> yeah, definitely. that's amazing. Um, So, I mean, you spent, yeah, you said two years now at Alora house mm-hmm. in probably various capacities. I don't know if you were the program director the whole time or if you kind of moved around a little bit, but. I definitely um, a lot of roles. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, I presume. Yeah. Um, yeah. What would it be some of the, I don't know, some of the most rewarding moments and maybe some of the like harder or challenging moments that you have faced kind of in these first couple of years being on the front lines as they say yeah um I mean I've definitely had a lot to learn so I mean maybe I'll start with one challenge is just the learning curve um Mm. and that combined with being a new organization I think you know there's growing pains but even in the work that we're doing on the front line, um, having the privilege of working with survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important to have an attitude of like learning and humility, like making mistakes and then learning from those mistakes. I always want to make sure that everyone on the team at Alora House and even the residents in our care know that it's okay to make mistakes and that mm-hmm. we just get back up and keep going. Um, I guess some of the most rewarding moments, I feel like just, like I said, like having the privilege of walking alongside survivors and supporting them in the ways that they need in their healing journey and seeing them, um, they're so resilient and inspiring, seriously. Um, Mm -hmm. like they inspire me every day and I learn from them every day too, which Mm -hmm. is a really cool opportunity um so yeah those even in the challenge because it is a very challenging job it's challenging work 
but I always say it's challenging, but it's even more rewarding. It's those moments mm -hmm. where you build relationship with someone and you see them overcome a challenge or you see them, you know, regain their voice and their power and they get to make informed decisions for themselves, mm -hmm. decisions that are, you know, healthy and going to better themselves. Um, so that I think is probably the most rewarding part of this job. It's also so rewarding to work with the team, like our staff and volunteers. Um, Alora House is just this, we've cultivated a work environment that's so supportive, mm. um, like a family, which is really awesome. So we, you know, we're always there for each other, picking each other up, supporting each other when we've had a hard day or a hard week. Um, so that's really special too, to be a part of that. And I think that is also just really important. And it's not something that you can like force or like, you know, force <laughs> on a team is like, and now we're going to be like family, everyone. Yeah. But it, especially in, in the work that you're doing, it is like integral to, to the women and the guests that you were working with in mm -hmm. the house, that that sense of family like comes from you know, the top down for lack of a better word. Yeah. But, you know, like if the if the people who are caring for them like can't get along and have this like kind of it just feels like a job and whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, if you don't have that family atmosphere, like and, and the fact that you guys do that you have, you know, cultivated that kind of a culture mm -hmm. is I think having probably an enormously like an enormous impact, like bigger than you might even realize. Um, yeah. on the women and and how safe they feel and how mm -hmm. um how they like they feel like they belong um yeah. because you guys feel like you belong mm -hmm. and part of the team like i think that's so important like we can't offer something to someone that we don't have yeah ourselves yeah and i think so often we're trying to like tell people that they belong or that you know we care about them but we don't even care about each other or ourselves and mm -hmm. you can't fake something like that right yeah. it's <laughs> Yeah. And and I and I think like um these women can kind of smell in inauthenticity like a mile mm -hmm. away. Oh, right. So definitely. you can't put it on. It's no. <laughs> you know, it either is or it isn't. And that also yeah. that like culture of like it's okay to make a mistake, like that is mm -hmm. huge. And I think that's huge for all of us, regardless of what kind of a situation we find ourselves in in our lives in this mm -hmm. moment is giving ourselves the grace to make mistakes and then surrounding each other um with support when we do and being like yeah. hey like we're not leaving the room <laughs> like mm -hmm. we're still here yeah. so it wasn't okay but like we're still here yeah. and it's gonna be like it's gonna be okay right mm -hmm. um yeah I and this question is always kind of weird and I feel like people never really quite know how to answer it but I keep asking it because I'm always so intrigued by it because I just think like there's often such a shift, um, at least I know for me, and like you you mentioned like a learning curve of like mm -hmm. starting from the beginning and not knowing like anything, barely even knowing human trafficking exists, mm -hmm. you know, to then you find yourself in Bangkok and that's like in your face. And then now you're back, you know, and you're working mm -hmm. at a Laura house and, you know, in like rural Ontario and it's just mm -hmm. all these, you know, I guess I just always want to know, like, are there ways that your maybe your heart or your perspective has changed kind of in from being in kind of the capacity of like, I don't even know this is happening. Um, and so you maybe view the issue in one light. Mm -hmm. And then once you're on the front lines and once you meet people and once you hear these women's stories, 
something happens to your heart. And sometimes we get like hardened because it's really hard um, to hear those things. And sometimes we get softened and sometimes we get both. And Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, you know, if you have any of those moments kind of in your own journey. Yeah. I feel like um, one of the hardest things is because we're, I'm working in a residential setting and the residents in our care are usually with us for a number of months. Um, you really like I'm in there 40, 30 to 40 hours a week, five days a week, four days a week. So you really get to know a person. And if you're one of their kind of primary caregivers at the time, like walking through a wide range of things with them, not just the day-to-day programming, um, you get to know who they are as a person. And then having to hear the stories of what they've experienced is so heavy and really hard Mm -hmm. and that obviously like their lived experience is nothing in comparison to what I feel is difficult to hear about it Mm -hmm. um so like don't want to say that to diminish their experiences but um I found that sometimes um almost to protect myself my heart has been a little bit hardened I think probably for most people working in this field there's a certain degree of desensitization a little bit Mm. just to be able to to keep going every day and hear these things every day and work you know work through them with the survivor um but then at the same time i also you know i'm so impacted by those stories so it also softens my heart it's a weird kind of paradox yeah yeah Like it's not like I'm not impacted by them. I'm significantly impacted them by them, which makes it hard. Um, But yeah, and then I think in terms of my perspective changing, things I've learned, being able to, I mean, at Alora House, we're providing um, care in every area. So that's we're outsourcing for clinical supports like trauma therapy. Um, we're facilitating their case management with them. So any of their medical, housing, legal needs, and then there's the emotional support and, you know, we see it all. We're walking through it with them. We're entering their home, essentially, where they're living Mm -hmm. and experiencing all of those things alongside them if they let us into that. Um, so I now feel like I have more of an understanding and a perspective of seeing things from a survivor, like being able to see things a little bit more and understand from their lens mm-hmm. in terms of how they're interacting with the criminal justice system and different social supports. So I think, you know, being educated on human trafficking by like what the police are saying and what the news is saying, um, everyone has their own perspective because they're kind of specializing in a certain area and we all have to work together to meet the needs of the survivor. But at Alora House, we have the unique opportunity to see them interact with all of these services and agencies in the community. And I've just learned that it's a lot different for them than what we're told on the outside. Um, like, do you mean kind of in their experiences, like, um, with each of these services that they're offered, like how they respond to them, like 
that's yeah. different than what you, but then maybe what those services. And like yeah. sometimes we think we're, we think that we're having like an impact that we're not having, mm -hmm. which sounds really harsh. And I don't mean that in like that no. they're not doing any good. Like that's not, mm -hmm. it. it's just that like things are always received differently depending yes. like I can say the exact same thing to six different people and it will be received six different ways based mm -hmm. on the lens that they are receiving me through yeah right so I yeah. think and so kind of do you mean like you're they're seeing that um you're seeing that you know in the women it's just it's not it's not what it looks like <laughs> on the outside yeah so even mm -hmm. for example um, when laws are passed or policy changes that is supposed to be for the betterment of the experiences of people who have survived that, um, often the way that those policies impact a survivor directly aren't positive. Mm. So just being able to see outside of what we think or what we think is best based on you know our professional experience or our expertise or whatever, and being able to see it from their lens is really important because ultimately they're the ones who make decisions for themselves. They know what they need um, and they know better than us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And nobody knows better than them, like what it's like to be yeah. in their, in their shoes, in their position at their unique, like, stage of healing which looks different for everybody you know yeah. there's it's not a one size fits all no kind of um kind of thing yeah um so yeah i think that is one thing that i've really learned and i'm trying to um make sure i i'm aware of all the time um being you know like always listening to what they need um and what they're trying to say um yeah I think that I think that's huge yeah. I think that's huge like yeah I think having that um you know survivor led is always going to be mm -hmm. just better not that the rest of us shouldn't do anything because we don't know yeah. what what's what it's like but it's like you said at the beginning this you really have to enter everything with like so much humility mm -hmm. and be always willing to learn like you mm -hmm. cannot ever assume that you have it like i figured it out now like i know exactly what everyone needs and i know how to do it and like yes you're going to learn like things along the way and sometimes you're going to do things really well and sometimes mm -hmm. you're not um but yeah we we have to have a lot of like grace for each other and humility for ourselves in like mm -hmm. admitting that we have so much to learn you know mm -hmm. from survivors from you know anyone impacted by or working in, in this industry like we have so much so i mean and the more i do these podcasts the more i'm like oh my gosh i know nothing <laughs> <laughs> just when i think i'm like okay like i think i maybe under nope nope don't yeah. understand it at all like <laughs> just you know it's crazy but and and that's why we're so excited to um have some of these women share their stories on the podcast this summer mm -hmm. it's just it's an invaluable like we we can't like i can't even pretend to understand what it's like to have been there mm -hmm. um, and nothing will inspire people to change aspects of their life to stop this kind of thing other than hearing how it actually impacts somebody and, and their whole life mm -hmm. um What's one thing that you've learned about the sex industry that 
um, you would want people to know or understand? Um, so one thing I guess that I've learned about the sex industry that I feel like is there's still a lot of stigma um, and misconceptions about this is just um, having an understanding of the difference of between sex work and sex trafficking. Often those two things are conflated mm -hmm. um, and that's the same. So um, I feel like my knowledge is specifically with sex trafficking, not the sex industry. Um, because at Allura House, we're working with those who have been trafficked or exploited mm -hmm. uh, in the sex industry. So one thing, um, it was the focus of my research when I did my thesis was misconceptions and myths about human trafficking and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And again, when I came back from Thailand, I had a lot to learn because human trafficking here looks a lot different than in Southeast Asia, for example, or anywhere else. Um, so I think the biggest thing is that I think we're starting as, you know, the public, as society, um, and in Canada to understand that um, human trafficking and sex trafficking can be a local issue. It doesn't require the crossing of international borders, but I'm finding that in talking to different people in the community, um, there's still a misconception that it involves kidnapping, like someone being taken against their will, which is not the case. That's um, yeah, not nearly as likely to happen here. No, like that form of it is. No. Yeah. Yeah. So here it's, you know, grooming um, mm -hmm. takes a long time. Sometimes it's a slow process of building trust and a romantic or sexual relationship with a person. And then boundaries are crossed and the lines are blurred and it quickly can become um, more of the dynamics of an abusive relationship, domestic violence. Mm -hmm and then exploitation happens. Um, and I think too, the role of social media is huge with mm. young people. They're being flagged and recruited on social media, groomed on social media and exploited on social media. So mm. every single part of the process is happening and can happen on their own social media accounts. Yeah, so, which is alarming. That's very alarming. Like alarming. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so, and this is kind of, again, <laughs> rabbit trail, but yeah, like what would, what would you, you know, suggest, like, what are, are things that um, people can look for, like parents, if they're kind of trying to keep a handle on what, what their kids are doing on social media and like, how do you, I don't know, are there red flags, are there things you know, to watch for, I mean, and what you've seen in your, in your research with, um, doing your thesis, like mm -hmm. what, what can people be looking for, um, on their social media accounts or like, how do we see this coming? You know what I mean? How, how yeah. can you recognize it before it's becomes, you know, gets all the way to exploitation kind of mm -hmm. thing. So I think having, um, private social media accounts is really important, not having open accounts, um, and knowing, and understanding what makes you as an individual vulnerable. So traffickers are looking for statements like um, that show a lack of confidence, problems at home. Mm -hmm. Like, I just want to make friends and leave. My parents don't understand me. Or 
I'm not beautiful. I can never have a girlfriend or boyfriend or things like that are flagged. Um, And then that trafficker is going to slide into someone's DMs and meet those needs or validate. Yeah. Yeah. Try to fill that, fill that void. mm -hmm, Exactly. Um, Yeah. hmm. So it's things like that. And I mean, often it can be hard to pick up red flags because again, the grooming process is cultivating um, trust and that more romantic or sexual relationship. Um, I know through my research that sending, um, a lot of times part of that is sending um, explicit photos to the person, to the trafficker. And that is often later used as a form of coercion or control. I'll send these to your family. I'll put them all over wherever. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I think it's really important to have open dialogue with kids as they're getting on social media about these kinds of things, um, because awareness and education is a huge piece. And being Mm -hmm. able to have the dynamics within those relationships between child and caregiver of being able to openly talk about things like that, I think is really important too. Mm -hmm. Because then it's like, yeah, if you create, if it's this sort of um, like silent kind of shame filled Mm. thing where you don't want, like you think it's kind of weird, but now you're kind of embarrassed and you don't want to like, you don't want to say anything because you, you feel, you feel shame around that or whatever, but it's like, oh my gosh, like it would be so much better, (laughs) you know, if, if Mm. there was that open line like you said of communication mm-hmm. where they feel comfortable um coming to their guardian whoever someone an adult that they trust and being like does this seem weird to you like I feel uncomfortable why do I feel uncomfortable you know mm-hmm. um, or this person messaged me that I don't know like should I message them and the answer is probably no and you know what I mean like um but yeah if, if there's a, a significant you know void or something that someone's trying to fill that mm-hmm. even you know even uh, um a complete stranger who's giving you that attention that could be very mm-hmm. inviting yeah very inviting right and mm-hmm. and as a young person yeah thanks for thanks for answering that i think that's really helpful cuz um i know it's it's a big issue for um parents and caregivers and and a lot mm-hmm. of times they're just not quite sure how to you know and and i mean building that relationship with your kids where the communication is open like if it hasn't been open for so many years and now your kid's like 17 like that's gonna be very hard to open Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like it just is yeah but it's it's worth trying and it's worth putting Mm -hmm. the effort in to try to build that and be like hey like this is why I'm not trying to you know cramp your style I just Mm -hmm. you know I don't want this to happen to you and I want you to be aware yeah kind of thing um have you used this is also a random question but Mm -hmm. Um, the social media campaign that you kind of created, um, have you used it at all? Have you been like implementing it? Are you like saving? I'm just so curious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's a really good question. I actually haven't because I want to have, um, survivor feedback on it before. Mm. Yeah. And I also, um, I'm a millennial and I, it was actually pretty challenging for me to, develop like graphics and marketing that would um 
kind of catch the eye of Gen Z. Mm-hmm. You know, you we're gonna not- get some Gen Z on your team. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So um, let's get like a sample group of like Gen Z and we'll like throw up yourself and then we'll get them to be like brutally honest, which they yeah. will be anyways. <laughs> that would be awesome. Um yeah. So my project my thesis project, that campaign is just kind of sitting in my portfolio waiting to be released um but yeah i just feel like it needs some fine-tuning first yeah for mm-hmm. sure yeah but it's eventually that's i, I can't wait to see it yeah <laughs> awesome. uh, well i'm just yeah i'm i'm so so proud of you and and what you have done and what you are doing with Alora house and like honestly like i said before just like having um, the courage to be like, this isn't the path that I want to be on and I'm going to change it. And now look, you know, um, like where you are. And I know that you're making an impact in the lives of these women. And I know that Louisa would say the same thing. So, um, uh, yeah, how, um, I, I do have, I have one final question after this, but how can people get in contact with you or connect with you if you'd like them to, if they have questions, (laughs) sir, (laughs) if they're Gen Zers and they want to like sign up for your little, uh, test, um, thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I believe my email is on the Laura House website which is okay, just laurahouse.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also, I send out a newsletter that is quarterly right now. Um, so you can sign up for that on our website as well. And that will give you more of a kind of a frontline update on what's going on um, in the house and how things are going. Um, so yeah, those are the main two ways, my email or our website. Perfect. And you can mm-hmm. find, yeah, the email on the website. That's mm-hmm. perfect. We'll put all of that in the show notes as well. Okay. Um, and yeah, so our last question that we ask everyone that's not mm-hmm. related to human trafficking at all mm-hmm. um, is, and I believe that you are a tea drinker, not a coffee drinker. Is that correct? I have actually recently become more of a coffee <gasps> drinker. Yes. Yeah. So proud. <laughs> I would... Okay. Well, you may answer this question with coffee or tea. Okay. But if you could drink, um, have your your drink of choice, your beverage of yeah. choice, any way that you like it, mm-hmm. um, what would you be drinking? Who would you drink it with and where? Okay. So I would be drinking um, probably an Americano. Or You jumped right into the deep end with the I coffee. <laughs> oh, my, oh, my gosh. Okay. So usually people are like, I started with like a little bit of coffee and then mostly yeah. like sugar and cream. And work my way down. Yeah. So what happened? Like I've gone my whole life. So I just started drinking coffee maybe like six months ago. And before that, I was only drinking tea. So I was like chugging back probably like four cups of tea a day. But once I started drinking coffee and felt the caffeine, like, oh, I'm actually not like I can wake up in the morning and this actually really helps. So now I drink coffee every day. Oh my gosh. I love it so much. Okay. Sorry. Continue. Americano. So I'd be drinking Americano um, with my husband and where I would be drinking it would probably be a cabin somewhere in the woods, maybe near Algonquin and in the fall because that's my favorite season. Yes. I would Mm -hmm. crush that. (laughs) 
I would 100%. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for being on here, Monique. Honestly, mm. this has been so much fun. I hope that you've enjoyed it as well. Yeah. Thanks um, so much for having me. Thanks for listening to today's conversation, Monique. I'm sure that you were inspired, maybe even inspired to do something uh, to make an impact in the lives of those affected by human trafficking. At Wild Ginger Coffee, that's pretty much what we're all about. And when you buy coffee or any of our items from us, um, we donate a significant percentage of our profits um, to organizations that are working with women. So if you would like to be a part of what we're doing and making an impact in the lives of women, you can head on over to wildgingercoffee.com and place your order for fresh, locally roasted, transparent trade coffee today. It is delicious and honestly, it does make a difference and we're so grateful every time that you make a purchase. So why don't you join our family um, and order some coffee and we will see you next time on the Wild and Free Podcast.